Thanks for listening to the podcast from Jonathan Combs and the preaching team at Eastgate Church in Rocky Mount, North Carolina. Check us out on the web at eastgate.church for more. And now, here's the sermon. How's everyone today? Y'all doing well? Good to see everybody. We're starting a new series this morning called Family Life. This, this morning, we're going to be talking about, well, the family and what it means to be the family of God. And so here's the cool thing about a series like this is we're all part of a family. Whether I'm talking a physical family or, or some other type of church family or, or a work family, we're all, ty- we're all part of some sort of family. And so as we dig in today, we're going to be in Ephesians for this whole series. And that anyone who's read through the book of Ephesians would know why that is. It's one of those books of the Bible that speaks very specifically about the family your physical family, that is, but also uh, what it means to be God's family. And that's really what's most important as we dig into the next few weeks, as we dig into the book of Ephesians. That's really what, that's what we want to be asking is, do, do I want something more for my, for my family, for, for my wife, for my husband, for my kids, for my future family? Do I want something more in, out of family? Do I, do I want what the culture says I should want? Do I want what society says is right? Or do I want what maybe God wants? Which is, just so you know, just to peer in under, under the veil a little bit. He knows best. Uh, he, he designed the family. In fact, it's one of the first things he did in the, the Word of God is make family. And so he knows very well his intention, his design. And so let's ask together, God, what does it look like to be your family? What does it look like to receive the blessing of family from you. Now here's a few statistics. Maybe these are troubling. They're just what they are. And so I just want to lay these out here just to describe the state that maybe you're experiencing, but also your neighbors and your coworkers, kind of the state of where we are as a culture. And so just a few things. Listen in. We're going back we're going back to 1960, okay, to look at some stats versus today. All right. I wasn't around in 1960. If you were, God bless you. Thank you for being here today. You represent a very different time period, just so you know. I'm sure you're aware at this point, but just a few things. In 1960, did you know the average married age for men was 24, and for women, it was 20. Now, just so you know, it ain't nothing like that now. The average age for men now is 29, for women, 27. I'm surprised even by that. I figured it would be in the 30s, but Percentage of Americans who happened to be married by the age of 30, 90% were married by 30 in 1960. Only 51% now. Taking people longer or perhaps never getting there. Percent of Americans never married. There was only 7% in 1960. Now it's 35% of people never married. The divorce rate in 1960 was 17%. Now... 48%. 48%. Almost one out of two fail. Age at age of the people when they had their first child, men 25, women 20. Now think about that. So they were getting married at 20. They were having children as well. It, it, it was quick. Age at first child for nowadays is men 30, 27 for women. Average number of children in 1960, 3.62. So there was partial kids running around. It was weird, like half kids. No, you get the stats. Like They kind of had the variety. But close to four. Most, most families had close to four kids. Now, 
1.7. What that means as a nation is we're not replacing ourselves anymore. We're no longer even hitting replacement. Both children who... uh, Both parents are in their first marriage in 1960, 73%, now 45%. Children in single-parent homes in 1960, there were only 9% in single-parent homes. Now, 26%. And just so you know, that is the highest percentage in the world. The U.S. has the highest percentage of single-parent homes. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. It could be the fact that we have a certain amount of security. Um, I wouldn't say that's necessarily a positive thing, but... 26%. Children with cohabiting parents, 0% in 1960. It just wasn't a thing. Now it's nearly 10%. Now, the point of these statistics is not necessarily to get you upset or to make you discouraged or even maybe you fit in here somewhere. That's not the point. The point isn't to somehow discourage you, but rather to make you think about what we're facing as a people. Probably what you're facing as you arrived at church today, is that some, some piece of this is, is something you're battling. Whether these statistics fit you or not, there's other things that these things don't speak to, and that is, what is my family life like? Like, how did I grow up? Grew up? You know, that no matter, no matter if you have a wife or a husband or kids, no matter if any of that's true for you right now, here's what is true. You had parents. You... I don't think appeared one day. I'm I'm, I'm 100% positive you didn't just appear out of thin air. You had parents. You may have had siblings. And you may have had a very dysfunctional family. I I, I bet a right many of you had some some difficulties. Because you know, in fact, 100% I'm sure that there were some difficulties in your childhood. You know how I know? Because nobody's perfect. My parents did a really good job. I'm very proud of them. But they didn't do everything right. There were moments that weren't perfect. Some of us faced far worse. Some of us, some of us faced abusive fathers, absentee fathers, maybe depression. Maybe there was addiction in your household. Maybe your parents got a divorce. Maybe, maybe from your earliest memory, all you can remember is your parents fighting and hating each other. That's a lot of you in the room. I know statistically that's true because half of the marriages fail. And so if you're starting a family of your own or you're into it a little bit, you may even be saying to yourself, I don't really know what right looks like. I didn't see it growing up. And there's great news for that. Even if you knew what right looked like, I can tell you this. Here's what I've learned. I think my parents did a fair job. But it takes a lot of energy to try to do this thing called parenting. It takes a whole lot of... It's not like osmosis. I didn't like receive the gift from them just because they were very diligent parents. It didn't work that way. I have to try. I have to work at it. And there's no woman on the planet that would make me happy all the time. It's just, it doesn't exist. Just like women, I know there's no man on the planet that would make you happy all the time. And if you're looking for him, you'll never find him. He doesn't exist. Well, actually he does, but he's not what you think. (laughs) He died on the cross for you. He's the only one. He's it. And so there's this this God-sized vacuum in our hearts that sometimes we try to fill with people and we can't. It can only be filled with Christ. And so this thing called family is work. But we're not alone. 
That's really the piece of the message today. This, I hope, will just be straight up encouraging to you today. It might challenge you a little bit, but I hope it will really embolden you that you are not alone in trying to be a parent, trying to be a spouse. And and what you're looking for in family, you're not alone. God has a plan and He desires to bless you in it. He wants this for you more than anything. Regardless of how you grew up, I don't care where you come from, there's hope and there's healing in Jesus. I pray you'll believe that by the end of the day. So we're going to be in the book of Ephesians. We're going to see the Apostle Paul. This is really a prayer. This is his prayer for believers. That they would experience God's blessing, His blessing on the family. That they they would know what it means to really be part of the family of God. And I believe we can see this. We can experience this same blessing for our families. And we'll see four, I think, four clear steps to experience God's blessing for our family. So here we are. We're in Ephesians chapter 3. We're going to read verse 14 to the end. It'll be on your screens. It's in your bulletins. Let's follow along together. It says here in verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth, the length, the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to Him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Amen, church. This is a prayer of blessing. And I pray that if we would dig in and seek it for ourselves and follow the Lord's leading, we would have it too. How can we experience the blessing, God's blessing on our family? Here's the first thing I see very clearly that Paul's praying for that I think is is obvious step one. And that is to bow to the Father's authority. If you got your notes with you, there's there's something to fill in there. Bow to the Father's authority. He comes out. Right out of the gate, in verse 14, he says, here's the reason. For this reason. Now, you'd have to read all of Ephesians to know what he's talking about. Some commentators, when writing on this, he starts chapter 1, verse 1, by saying, for this reason. It's like he's been itching to just get to this prayer. Like, it's about to explode in him. Because for chapter 1 and chapter 2, he is talking about this amazing grace of Christ Jesus. This amazing mercy and love that's been poured out for us that we didn't deserve. And this wild thing that's happening where where God is grafting all people into His people. Like, we're all becoming one family. Something the people of Israel, the Jewish people, they didn't see coming. That God was now uniting all people under the banner of the cross. That the the crucifixion would now be for all peoples. The salvation from God would now be for all. This is this glory, this amazing grace Paul's been talking about. And so he starts chapter 1 verse 1. It's like, for this reason. This is the reason that I have a ministry. And that's where he's going to go for like the the next few verses. And and this is why, why God has called me to be a minister. And now finally here in verse 14, he's like, and again, for this reason, his love, his grace, his mercy, 
the fact that all of us are getting called according to His purpose together. For that reason, I'm bowing my knees. I'm getting on my face before God. Because why? Because He is worthy, first of all. But also because I know that everything I was meant to do, my destiny, my destination, all of it is wrapped up in what God has called me and destined me for, what He's worked out in me. And I'm laying down now. I'm, I'm laying down my pride, whatever it is I thought I needed for myself. No, I'm bowing my knees before the Father. And He's praying this over us. Certainly He's praying this over the church. But also every family, as it says, every family in heaven on earth is named. He kind of does a play on words here. The word father and the word family are very similar in the Greek. The word father is pater. And the word family is patria. He's saying that the father of, of, of all nations, the father of the family. He's saying this, this God, this creator God is, is God of all. Every tribe, every church, every family in heaven and on earth. It's interesting here, he, he certainly means, I think, the heavenly family, which if in heaven, that's going to be different. Different better. <laughs> and that we know what it means to really be brothers and sisters in Christ. We're experiencing it, but there's, it's like we're experiencing it with some shadow. You know, we're seeing it in part. Eventually, we will see it in whole. But then he also says, not, on, not just in heaven, but also on earth. And I think this is an indication of not just the church of God, but also each individual family. Every family, as he puts it, is named. I know this to be true. I, 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 know, I know that the scope of Ephesians is going to get to the family as a whole. And so Paul is already leaning into this. And I have no doubt that this design of man and woman and children, this design has been from the top. <laughs> He started it this way. This is a return to Eden, in fact. This is the garden scene all over again. That we would know what it means to really be the family of God again. Look at Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. That's chapter 1. Chapter 2 Verse 24, it says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is, the first marriage was done by God. There were no pastors. There was no, no, no preachers there to do. God initiated the first marriage. It was His thing. So this marriage idea, I don't, I don't know how you've come in today, and my, my scope isn't just marriage today. I'm just covering the family as a whole. But if you've walked in the door today and you're like, I don't know what in the world I'm walking in with. We fought the whole way here. If that happened today, God bless you. Thank you for still walking in the door. Some of you thought about just turning around and going home. Some of you fought with your kids on the way here. That, that, that If I had had children with me when I arrived, it could have been very likely. I got here pretty early though. No kids. I'm in a good mood. I hadn't fought with anybody today. We can fight later. If, we, if you need to get something out, I'll receive it. But... Some of you, on the way here, and you're already thinking, this, this marriage thing, man, boy, is it hard. And anybody who ever says this marriage thing is man's institution, you're already setting yourself up for failure. It's not a, it's not a man thing. It's a God thing. I don't know why He designed it this way, but this is what He did. And His first great commission wasn't go therefore and make disciples. That's the one in the New Testament. The first one was... Be fruitful and multiply. 
Our church is good at that. Did y'all see what happened earlier? Like, a lot of kids. We're good at it. We took the Great Commission, the first one, very seriously. The family of God, this is God's thing. He's called us to this. And what that means is, is if, if it's His design, if He's called us to it, then He's in charge. That's the point of, of where I'm going with this, is that I've now got to bow my knee to His authority and not man's. Not my own. I don't get to look in the mirror and say, I know what it, I know what it means to be a husband. Even if I saw what right looked like growing up, if my father or my mother was a good parent or a good spouse, it's not enough. I promise you it's not enough. I have, to, I have to look at the Word of God and say, who do you say that I am? What do you say that the family should be? I'm yours then. This is what families have been doing throughout generations. Look when Joshua, who became the head of the families of Israel, here's what God told him that would be the key to success for him. Look at Joshua 1.8, one of these famous verses. It says, Study this book of instruction continually. Meditate on it day and night so you will be sure to obey everything written in it. Only then will you prosper and succeed in all that you do. Only then. And so what was Joshua's response? Well, there was many there just in chapter 1, but one that's very famous that we often go to is Joshua 24, 15, where he says this to the people who were going a lot of different ways. He says, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your father served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Only you get to make that choice. It's up to you. And it's not, it doesn't get passed on from generation to generation. You as an individual get to the opportunity, the responsibility to say, as for me, I'm serving Christ. So this, this, brings, this brings a question to kind of finish this first idea. And that is, who's in charge? I can't answer that. Although I got a feeling if I spent 24 hours at your home, I'd figure out who's in charge. For some of you, we'll find out kid-centric. Kid-centric home. That means the kids are in charge. It's a dangerous house. You may have gotten here by accident. I I, I don't mean this to, to belittle you or discourage you, but if the kids are in charge... I've learned something about kids. They don't have a clue. They don't, and I don't even have a clue all the time. I'm pushing 40, but I ain't figured out a whole lot of stuff. There's a lot of stuff out there I still need to research and figure out for myself. And sometimes I don't really even understand my mood. Like, why am I angry? What is frustrating me? For that, that's an adult. For a kid, they have no awareness of why they're just upset that day. They rolled over funny when they got up. Their hair came out like this, and they're just mad at the whole house. If he's or she's in charge, that's a dangerous place to live. But that ain't it. You might have a mom-centric house. This is very popular in American culture. And I'm not going to stop there before you get mad at me. We say, you know, mom wears the pants in the house. You know, mom's in charge. And you'll see, I don't even really have to spend time there. I'll come in and I'll see one of these things on your wall that says, if you know, if mom's not happy, no one's happy. And I'll see that plaque on the wall and I'll go, Yeah, okay. I mean, if dad's not happy at my house, it's pretty bad too. Uh, If the kids aren't happy, it's still bad. Like people unhappy, unhappy people make other people unhappy. Isn't that weird? I don't understand that plaque. If you have that at your house, maybe just hide it when I show up. Because I'm going to be like, (laughs) now I'm unhappy because I'm so concerned. 
Dad-centric house, it's no bueno either. It's not good either. There's this thing called God-centric house. And it is so different than most of what you see in this society. We live in a culture where most places are kid-centric. And we get, these, we get to talk about these wonderful terms like helicopter parents who show up right when old Johnny fell down. It's the first time he's ever fell. He's going to die. And they just, <laughs> Y'all got to stick around for this series. I've got lots of good illustrations for stuff later. I mean, when we really dig in. The Lord blessed me with four kids, I think, just to really help me pastor. I really do. I really do. And some difficulties in my marriage just so I could be better at pastoring. And also because I'm a knucklehead and I had to learn lessons, right? Just like you. And so we get these wonderful terms. But the question is, whom do you, who, whom do you decide to choose and, and, and serve? Who, who is it? Are you looking in the mirror and saying, you know, in this house, I'm the head of the house. Whoop-de-doo. You're just a man. I'm a failure. But God is not. What would it look like if every family is built upon the source of authority? This authority, this, this God who designed marriage for our benefit, for our good, because He loves us, because He wanted something more for us, and He knows exactly our shape and what makes us tick and why I rolled out of bed not feeling so great today. Whatever that is, He knows i found that some magical things begin to happen when I do just little steps before I go and fuss at this kid because the kid did something wrong. They deserve discipline. But my discipline isn't holy when it comes from me. It's holy though when I, before I walk in the room, I pray. I say, all right, Lord, I'm super mad. I need you to, first of all, calm me down so that I can, do the, I can say what's right. I can say this with grace, but also with correct discipline. Because children need discipline. That when I speak to my wife, and on the rare occasion that I'm correct, and it, it happens, but that when I speak to her, I don't belittle her or look down to her. But I say, you know, we need to come to reconciliation by God's wisdom. And we work this thing out. It's not normal. Because... We've watched a lot of shows on TV. We've watched like 50 years on the family. We grew up, some of us grew up, I like I grew up on stuff like Full House, which is, let's just think about that show. There's not even a mom in the house. Like that's a confusing show. I grew up on some weird shows. So did you. And if that's what we're taking our pointers from, we're really, really confused. Who will you choose to serve? My argument is this, church, not kid-centric, not parent-centric, God-centric. Can we do it? Absolutely. Let's lean into the Father. Here's the second thing I see Paul praying for, and that is that we would depend on the Spirit's power. We would bow to the Father's authority, and we would depend on the Spirit's power. Look at what he's saying here in verses 16 through 20. He says, be strengthened by, be empowered by the, the Spirit of God. This, is, this word here is where we get the word dynamite most likely, dunamis, which means able or power or ability. He says it two times in these verses. He wants us to lean in on something that, that we don't have naturally, but we have it in Christ Jesus. I find, I find that the family in general is something like if, if you had one gift that, that would supersede all other gifts, it would be this. It would be perseverance. It, would be the, it is the greatest gift. 
I would also argue it's the greatest gift for ministry, perseverance. Like, I haven't been pastoring all that long, but I tell people, you know, what's really helped me most is just refusing to quit. And I've wanted to quit a handful of times. I'll just admit that. Because every once in a while, this thing in the back of my head says, you know, you're actually, you're pretty smart and you, you know, you, you've, you've been successful in other areas in your life. You, you could probably make more money doing something else. That's just facts, church. That is straight facts, all right? But I didn't do this for that. And that other voice, which is the Holy Spirit of God, says, you need to tell that guy to shush. He's, he's having a bad morning. I have to lean into that. And I know the same thing is tr- true as a husband, as a parent, that the thing I need to do is p- persevere in the Spirit of God, not in my own strength, but in His strength. There's m- multiple you know, promises of, of God here that we could go to all kinds of different places, but... Here's a few things, a few things to take note of. Jesus, first of all, promises us to give us this power through the Holy Spirit. In in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, He says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. At the point of salvation, the Holy Spirit's power is ours. The question now is, do we lean in on that or do we continue to just lean in? Well, this is how I've always done it. This is... You know, some people would describe that as madness, to continue to, to do the same thing over and over again and expect different results. That's, that's crazy, is what that is. But if you see a problem, if you see a snag, you know you need to change in some area. Lean in on the Spirit's power. The psalmist writes in chapter 127, he says, verse 1, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. In fact, it goes on in, in the Proverbs in chapter 14 to say, a wise woman builds her home, but a foolish one tears it down with her own hands. And I think he could insert the husband there as well. That would be equally true. You know, there's a troubling statistic among church-attending families. And uh, I recognize that not, not all of y'all are regular attenders here, but the 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 thing that's happening in our culture is people are, are, are leaving the church as, as a whole and, and most aren't coming back. And there, there might be a whole lot of reasons for that. Um, but one thing that I think is a possibility, and you could pop up this image for me, they're leaving after high school. They go to college or, or wherever they go from this point. About 70% of young adults are dropping out of church once they leave your house. Now, what does that mean? Well, that means they were, you were making them come to church, I guess, right? Some of you are doing that now. I'm not saying that's bad. But something has to shift. Something has to shift where the child owns it for themselves. Where, where they no longer look at this thing as like, that's my parents' religion. And they see it as my personal relationship. Now, this is scary, parents. You can't make this happen. But you can do some things better. You can depend on the Spirit's power more. Here's a, couple of, here's a couple of little proximity minds to throw into your life really quick. Just a couple of things to blow you up and make you mad at me. But look, they're for me too. These are things that I've been wrestling with this week going, okay, I'm scared. It's a righteous kind of fear. I have a, a 13-year-old, a 10, a 6, and a 3. A 13-year-old still loves me. I don't know when this is going to end. People tell me at some point teenagers just rebel. He still wants me to tuck him in at night. Don't pick on him later about that. 
It's kind of cute, although it does kind of frustrate me some nights. I'm like, just, just go to bed, all right? If you stay up later than everybody else, I'm trying to veg out now. Like, relax. But in, in a way, it's something endearing. Um, he wants to be with me. He wants to hang out with me. He cares about what I think. I assume this is going to change. People tell me it will someday change. Either that or I'm just cool. Just a cool dad. It's possible. I'm not, I'm not just, I'm not setting that, that, that's a good possibility, right? It's true. Whoever said no, you know it's true. <laughs> but there's a righteous fear in this of like, what are my kids actually observing in me? Yeah, he's pastor dad. Y'all know, y'all know how many pastors' kids leave the church? And they don't just leave. They go nuts. Like, y'all have met them. Y'all know some of them. They don't just leave the church. They, rebu- they rebuke the church. They decide God isn't real. They go, they go as far, far, far away as they can. And I've met these people. I'm a PK. Crazy, right? I told God uh, for a long time, I'm not doing this pastoring thing. Now, I didn't rebel against Him in, the, in salvation. I believed all that. I just said, I don't want to do this ministry thing because it looks like a mess. And I see what my dad has to do all the time. I don't want any part of it. And God said, you're funny. And here I am. <laughs> but I'm scared for my children in that. What are they really observing in me? Do they see me? They see me preaching. You know, the 13-year-old, he's, he's not well today. But if he was in here, he sees me preaching. And I'll ask him later, all right, what were my points? And he'll roughly get them. He spends a lot of time clicking his pen and shimmying about, right? He's got ants in his britches right now. But All right, so he sees me preach. He sees my passion for the Word of God. But what about tomorrow? What about the other massive amount of time that I spend with him? Does he see me in here? Does he see me bowing on my knees in prayer? Not enough. I promise you it is not enough. Do I spend time with Him in the Word of God? With these girls in the Word of God? These three girls God's given me? Boy, that scares me a little bit. Do they see that this faith is more than just something I do on Sunday mornings? Because really what's happening, the reason they're leaving is they go, you know what, that's a phony. That's fake. My parents make me go to church on Sundays, and then the rest of the week, they're terrible people. And I don't mean that mean. But like, Everything that you say is true and this two hours you spend here doesn't appear to be true anywhere else. That's confusing. So in one sense, they're actually being honest. Now, it's bad, but it's honest. They're saying, it doesn't seem real. It's a fake and I don't want to be a part of it. So who am I outside of these walls? Who are you outside of this place? Taking them to church is not the solution. It's really, it's just true. We'll get to spend, if you come here every week and and we're going to pour out the Word of God back here in the children's ministry and if when they're teenagers, I'm going to pour it out in here and I hope they listen, but you are their impact. You are their greatest impact. What do they see you doing outside of these walls? What do they see you prioritizing? Is everything else more important than a relationship with Christ Jesus? Everything else. And this isn't just something to toot the church's horn and say, oh, you guys better be in church every week. That's not the point. But I I just want you to understand something, that if every single week there's something better to do than spend time in fellowship with God, that's confusing to a child. And a teenager is eventually going to see through that and say, well, it doesn't seem very important, so I ain't going to have no part in it. 
Have you decided instead, church, and this is something you can do to depend on the Spirit's power, I'm going to get serious about my walk with Christ. Here's a game changer. (laughs) We don't have to be afraid. We don't have to worry about this as parents, as spouses. We don't have to worry about this if we get serious about our walk with Christ. He can take care of the rest. And whatever goes from that point is up to Him. But you've got to be doing your part. What's, What's your part to play? Well, okay. I'm going to be in here. I'm going to be on my knees in prayer. I'm going to be asking him some things that he, God, tell me a little more about myself so that I can be different, so that I can be changed. That'll rock your family's world. It will rock them. Here's the next. The next step I see him giving, and that is to dwell in Christ's love. To dwell in Christ's love. Here Paul, he says in verses 17 through 19, he says the word love several times. It is the word agape here. This is one of those Christianese kind of words that we throw about sometimes. But it's important to remember it here because it's unconditional. This godly kind of love is filled with mercy, filled with grace in such a way that it lacks condition. Now that is odd. All right? In society, that's just odd. You see that kind of love, and it really stands out. Because we don't really love anything without condition. It's just not normal. It's not normal human sinful broken behavior. It's not. It's only a God thing. And he says, it's this kind of love that I want you to dwell in. This is the idea. The word dwell here is the idea of to take up residence in. I'm going to build my house here. And if you didn't get that clear enough, he goes on to say to be rooted and grounded. So here's two illustrations that are kind of different. One is agricultural, one is construction. He's like, all right, well, if you, if you didn't catch the drift that I want you to build your house in it, here's what I want you to be. I want you to plant your roots here that everything you do in life, your family is, it's about love, unconditional love of Christ. And I want you to, this word build has the idea of putting the roof on. I want the cap of who you are as a family, to be the love of Christ. That's, that shifts everything. I mean, let's just be honest. That shifts absolutely everything. Every single fight. And if you stick around, we're going to talk a little bit about marriage. And if you've been told before, you know, a, a, a Christian marriage, a godly marriage, these people shouldn't fight. That's a lie. It's just a lie. And it's not biblical. However, even in the midst of conflict, it should be based around grace. And God's love. Do you know why people sometimes fight? Because they both think something's true and somebody's got to compromise or change. That's not a bad fight. Especially, you know, some of those, some of those nasty fights y'all have had about how to parent. You've had them. Because, you. well, I grew up, well, when I was growing up, my parents did this. You know, we, we and, and well, we didn't. And that's so barbaric. Oh, my God. And, Those are the kind of fights some of you had early on. That's not a bad fight. That's a disagreement that needs to be resolved. Otherwise, guess what happens? Your parent, your kids are so confused, like dad disciplines this way and mom disciplines this way, and they fight every time they discipline. I don't know what's going on. That's a that's a conflict that needs to be resolved. How? By the grace and love of Christ. Dwell in his love. 
rooted in it, grounded in it. This is the thing that nourishes me. This is the thing that supports me. It's the love of Christ. And he goes on then to say, you know, and it's this breadth. What a sentence. Verse 18. This one gives me chills every time I read it. He's like, what is the breadth and length and height and depth? This, This thing is 3D. This love is going every different way. I love what what Stott, one commentator right, John Stott, he says, it seems legitimate to say that the love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind. It's long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt him to heaven. How beautiful. Like, that's what I saw when I looked at it, was that the love of Christ, there's no boundary he can't reach. There's no person that's too far away. There's no relationship that's too far gone. There's nothing the love of Christ can't reach. I hope that's, if nothing else, I hope that's encouraging to you today. If you did walk in the door today, and that person you're sitting next to, you really wish you weren't. The love of Christ can reconcile whatever this is, whatever this burden is. That child that seems like they're never coming home. That child that seems like they're so far gone. Mm -mm. The love of Christ. We used to sing this song, Nothing Can Separate. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ was the kind of intent behind this. There's nothing. Because His love is so 3D. It's It's like 4D. We can comprehend it. We can know it. Paul's really feeling it right here. He ends verse 19 by saying some stuff like these, this, this wonderful triad of impossibilities, like this amazing thing. Chuck Swindoll, when writing on it, he says, Paul continues to set forth one impossibility after another. Unconditional love. That seems impossible. And yet, in Christ Jesus, it's not. An unknowable knowledge that you would know This surpassing knowledge, this eternal, infinite knowledge, we would know it. Wow. And to be filled with an infinite God, that we would experience the filling, the fullness of God who is infinite. What an amazing way to pray. God, these people, your church, your family, your church here, your congregation, that they would know the love of Christ, which surpasses understanding. And it's true. It's true in its part that this thing Christ Jesus has done for us, this gospel message that we should be preaching every Sunday here at church, that God loved us enough in spite of us to send His Son Jesus to sacrifice for us for our sin so that we might be saved, that is a surpassing love. An undeserved, unconditional kind of love. Wow. And that we can know it. Not just know it, but believe it. And that the faith would change us and save us. You know, you don't get to any of this without this. That in order to receive and bow the knee to authority, in order to dwell in His power, to to dwell in His love, depend on His power, it starts first with saying, you know what? God, your love for me was beyond compare. And I bend the knee to you first. And it takes some humility in saying, I'm not good enough. I'm not okay where I'm at. I needed a Savior. And He is Jesus. 
That's love. That's that love that surpasses knowledge. And now I can be filled with an infinite God. This begins to change me in such a way that I'm good to people who don't deserve to be good to. That I'm good to my kids in spite of their behavior. That I'm good to my spouse even when she comes home in a bad mood. Or wakes up in one. Or has had a rough day. I I just decide something before I even interact with people. And I don't do this well enough, but... That I've been filled with the Spirit of God, that His love is so pouring out in me, that I'm going to just treat people like they should be treated rather than what they deserve. Like, the way, the way God has loved me, what would it look like to pour that out into others? And that certainly changes my family. Now, i got to admit, I've done a little bit of marriage counseling at this point. And, alright, here's a freebie. This one's a freebie first. Come talk to me before it's already DEFCON 5. Like, normally what happens is when people finally make an appointment with me, one of the parties doesn't want to be there. So someone's drugged them there. And it's like the final shot of like, if the pastor can't fix it, it's over. Wow. Well, y'all have a lot of faith in me. God bless you. Wow. I'm not that good. But Christ is. But if you want help, maybe come when things are starting to unravel rather than when there's just two little threads that are somehow still sticking together. And the only reason that is, we got kids in the house. We probably should... Like, wow, there's barely enough electricity left to even say that there's a heartbeat. You know, there's nothing going on here. Maybe show up a little sooner. That's a freebie. But here's what I've noticed. Here's what I've noticed. This particular line is almost always there. But I just don't love him anymore. I just don't love her anymore. Okay. And that's my reason for divorce. Now, I got bad news for you. I always know there's more to that story. You're never going to fool me with that. Well, I just don't love him anymore. Really? What's occurred over time? Well, there was actually all these other things going on. There was infidelity, perhaps. There was someone else taking your attention. There was all kinds of things going on. You know what I've never heard said? And, and maybe it's because we're scared to say it as parents. I've never heard a parent say, I just don't love that child anymore. Never heard it. Does that mean we're capable of unconditional love? Or we're just not dumb enough to say something out loud that would be just so bad? You see where I'm going with this? Are we, are we capable of unconditional love? Well, maybe. Maybe parenting is close. But i got news for y'all. I don't like them all the time. They're frustrating. I do love them. I don't think I've ever stopped. So, so my wife, my husband does things to me that are so, that I, I can't figure out how to love them anymore. Like at some point, you just got to look yourself in the mirror and go, okay, what is it about me that has made the decision that I'm incapable of loving this person, but I can still love these little, little demons that run around and destroy stuff at my house and don't do what they're told. They can't feed themselves. They can't change themselves. This person's at least carrying their weight. It's interesting. I'll let you ponder that for a bit. Here's, here's the point of that. I think we are capable of unconditional love. And I think this thing called love that we have for one another, especially husband-wife, it was never based on conditions. It was never based on how beautiful they were, on how wealthy they were, on how 
functional we thought they were. And then we got into a few years with them and went, this person's a little nuts. (laughs) Well, you're a little nuts too. You're with them. That at some point in the journey, we have to go, you know, that's not why I'm here. Because God is the author of marriage. And I believe God put me with this person. This isn't accidental. I don't believe in accidents like that. I don't believe that. So I I don't love this person based on conditions. Y'all are going to think I'm terrible. And this was a joke, okay? I promise you this was a joke. I used to joke with my wife and say, if you put on like 75 pounds, it's over. Mm -hmm. I didn't mean that, all right? But it would have been a test, right? It would have been a test. Some of y'all are like, y'all have some kind of unwritten conditions like that though and you mean them. Don't pick on me. You mean them. There's some condition out there. If they do this, it's over. I want to tell you all something scary. That I made a decision with God, not with my spouse. Now I told, I told before a whole church congregation in sickness and in health, till death do us part. And I meant it. But I made another covenant with God. I said, I don't care what happens. I don't care what she does. I'm not doing it. The divorce thing is not an option in my house. I don't care if she cheats on me. I don't care what goes on. Christ says, how, someone asked him, how many times should we forgive? And he says, 70 times 7. The two numbers that he used biblically to describe perfection, to describe an infinite kind of number, and he uses them in combination. He says, how many times should we forgive? An infinite number of times. Y'all think I'm crazy. Go for it. I don't care. Because the covenant of marriage was about an unconditional love. I did not put conditions in it. And I think God protects me still. I think she knows that I love her like that. There ain't no other dude's going to love her like that. I ain't worried about some other dude. You know what I'm saying? Because I'm living right. You make conditions for your marriage, that D word's going to come up. I tell people in premarital, that word does not exist. You should never use it in a fight. It's not the right word. The only D word you can use is death. I actually had, I had someone tell me one time, I'm never going to divorce her, but the death word. It's not what I thought we were going for there. but Unconditional love. This is a game changer. You want to you know what's a big piece? And this is like this unwritten rule from the most wealthy families in the world. This unwritten rule that's underneath it. The most prominent people is parents sticking together. Isn't that crazy? That when you look at the, the elite, you'll find that almost all of those children were raised in two-parent homes where the parents stuck it out. It's like God knows. Even when they don't believe, it still works. Whoa! Here's the last thing. I got too excited on point three. Y'all got to tell me. Just give me me the chill sign. Here's the last. He ends this way in verses 20 and 21. That we would reflect God's glory. This is the sense of it. To Him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. Where? Throughout all generations. How long? Forever and ever. The glory of God would be put on display. This is why God did it. Underneath it all, the reason that He created marriage, the family, the children, the reason He created it, why? To reflect His glory. 
He makes this more clear as we're going to get into Ephesians later that this is a picture of the church and Christ's love. That a family who sticks together, who stays at the table together, loves each other unconditionally is a picture of Christ in His church. How amazing that we would get to reflect His glory this way. So I'm going to give you three quick biblical purposes that have to do with reflection. Number one, that you would mirror God's image. As we said earlier in Genesis 1, it says God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him, male and female, He created them. Mirror His image. And then what? Mutually complete one another. Ephesians 5 says, A man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, and the two are united into one. This is a great mystery, but it's an illustration of the way Christ and the church are one. And then lastly, multiply a godly legacy. Malachi 2 says, Didn't the Lord make you one with your wife? In body and in spirit, you are His. And what does He want? Godly children from your union. Boy, that, what? You mean the Bible says this? Oh yeah, oh yeah. And it's not over. It's not like Jesus came and that thing just, well, that's Old Testament. No. So guard your heart. Remain loyal to the wife of your youth. Guard your heart. Y'all got to come back in the next few weeks because we're going to dig into like some of these things seriously heavy. Like what is that about? What does it mean to be image bearers? What does it mean to be godly parents? I wonder, does your family reflect God's glory like this? Does <laughs> Here's a really good question. Do you think Jesus really wants you to break that covenant with your spouse? Does God really want you to give up on that child? I, I don't see that scripturally. I, where you sh- Show me afterwards where that's at and we'll have a conversation. In fact, I think the only thing Jesus wants us to break is the bondage to some generational sins in your family. Like my parents and my grandparents and my great-grandparents, none of them were able to sustain marriages. Like that's some of your family trees. They're not even trees anymore. They're just like, wah! I don't mean that to pick on you, but like it's getting confusing. Your kids are, now who's my, who's, who's granddad? It's gotten confusing, son. <laughs> I'm going to break that bondage though. These, these, these things. Oh, well, my father was always this way. You know, he was never really around much. He was a heavy drinker and, you know, I can't help that I'm this way. False. Only in Christ Jesus can I have healing and hope for my family. Does your family reflect His glory? When we heed Paul's prayer, we put our families in place for His blessing. This is what Jesus has already done for us. Some of you in the room are single. I got news for you. We got some stuff to talk about with you too. You're part of this family too. This bigger family that's the family in heaven. And that is what Christ has already done in us is greater. This is why we can approach being spouses or parents or any of these things, we can approach them with courage because of what Christ has done in us. Paul writes in Ephesians 1, part of the reason he said, for this reason I bow. In verse 5 he says, God decided in advance to adopt us into His own family by bringing us to Himself through Jesus Christ. This is what He wanted to do and it gave Him great pleasure. We're all part of the family of God in Christ Jesus. We have strength in Him. 
We have healing, whatever generational sins, He can deal with them. He can break those bonds. We submit to Him. We say, by your power, not my own. Lean in. He wants to fill us to the fullness of God, as Paul put. So bow to His authority, depend on His power, dwell in His love, and reflect His glory. Let's pray together now, church. Heavenly Father, we recognize that You are the author of the family. You were the one who put the first marriage together. You were the one that commissioned them to have offspring. You were the one that made the first family. And it, it was Your... It was your desire for this, for this world that we would be your image bearers, male and female, we would be your image bearers. And that by our families, we would somehow reflect the glory of the church and the cross. What wonder that, that is. I think that's true too, Lord. The more I think about it, like some of the greatest conversations I've had with people about the gospel have actually been the result of them observing my family and wondering how it is that we do certain things the way we do, how it is there's generally a sense of peace in my house. There's chaos, sure, because kids are kids. And, but in spite of that, that there's love. And that one of the greatest testimonies of the kingdom is what you're doing in our families. God, I, I'm praying that you would do something in this church I recognize that the church really is just made up of its building blocks, and that is each individual family. And we don't become a church that is really world community changing, world changing. We don't become that church until first you do a unique work in, in the homes. That something is already shifting Monday through Saturday. So when we bring that in here on Sunday, of course this church catches on fire. It's because, God, you're already doing a wonderful work in our lives at home. It starts there. We don't get to be the family of God until we first be the family of God all the time. I pray you do something, you do something only you can do, God. I recognize that there's maybe some people here right now, they've had some hard times lately with their spouse. Maybe they've had some, some bad fights. Maybe there have been some moments where they were like, ah, oh, I just don't know. I don't know if this is going to work. God, I pray right now you would touch those hearts. Help them see something true. That is, God, you loved us unconditionally, and because of that, we can love others unconditionally. That we can overcome. In fact, your word says, in Christ Jesus, we are more than conquerors. That whatever this fight was, and it may have been great, Whatever this season of, of difficulty, maybe financial, maybe there was something physically that was wrong, difficulty having kids or, or something else. There's some underneath it all, there's some limitation that has caused strife in the house. God, that you would heal it. That they would know this love that comes only from you and they would just pour it out on each other. God, would you do that now? I pray a piece of Christ would just land on that household. That perhaps there's someone in the room that they've got a child right now that's running from you, Lord. Would you give them wisdom into, into what to say, into how to respond, into how to show them love and mercy and grace. And God, do the work, 
Do the work that you can do. We pray it boldly. Bring them home to yourself first. It would be great if there was reconciliation in the family, but first, God, would you touch their life? Make them whole in you. God, I'm praying for these families. I recognize, friend, you may have showed up today, and this, is, this all sounds really like great news, that we would get to depend on the power of God, that we would get to dwell in His love. But you recognize something that's true. You've not yet said yes to Jesus for yourself. You have no relationship with Him yourself. Maybe your parents did. Maybe someone else in your life does, but not you. I want to give you an opportunity, friend, to first experience it for yourself. That the unconditional love of Christ, which can pour out through you and in you, first you can receive it by faith. It says in the Word of God in Romans chapter 10 that if we confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we will be saved. That salvation comes by faith and that faith comes by hearing and confession. We believe that as a church. And so I want to give you an opportunity, my friend. If you've come today, you've not yet received the love of Christ for yourself, why wait? Receive it now. If you're willing, you feel the Spirit's conviction, pray with me this simple prayer of confession. Jesus, I believe you died on the cross for my sin, my brokenness, my shame, my guilt, my wrongdoings. I believe, Jesus, today, I believe it, that you died for that. And it is paid for. That the cross was more than enough to pay for my brokenness. I believe that today. And I'm thankful for that, Jesus. And God, I believe that you raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And so, Jesus, I'm making you Lord of my life. What that means to me is you're now king. I'm putting you on the throne. You're in charge. I don't always know the right steps to make. I certainly don't know what it means to be a godly parent or husband or if those things are in my future, Lord. I don't. I need, I need your guidance. So you are Lord of my life. I believe it. And it gives me great hope to know that you've paid for me. I'm free of sin. And that you've already gone to prepare a place for me. I believe it today. Guide me now according to your purpose and not my own. Dear friend, if you prayed that with me just now, now welcome to the family of God. The church family of God. And we're praying right along with you. Lord, guide our steps according to your great purposes. Guide our families according to what you desire. Not just what we desire, Lord. Unless that lines up according to your will, Lord. I pray you would do in us, with us, what you want. And that we will see great joy in it. Use our families as a great testimony of the cross and church of God. We love you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.